message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are glad that you're with us this morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Grace. That was Adam Lopez leading us through some liturgy this morning. And if we haven't had the chance to meet you yet, we'd love to do that after the service Love that opportunity. But if you've got a copy of God's Word this morning, you'll want to turn it to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, our young disciples, young followers of Jesus, I want to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a description of the desert. How would you describe the desert? Second, be listening for what happened to stored bread. What happened when God's people tried to store bread? And third, be listening for how Jesus describes himself in the Gospel of John. How does Jesus describe himself in the Gospel of John? Well, this is the portion of our service where we open the Bible in hopes of understanding what it says and how it practically applies to our lives. And this fall, we've been engaged in a sermon series considering the Old Testament book of Exodus. And as we've moved through the Exodus story, we've been going at a fairly brisk clip, you might say, trying to understand the general thrust of the story. And as we follow it along with this grand story of rescue and deliverance, we've encountered both our deep need in God's amazing deliverance and provision. Last week, we considered how God's people found themselves in what you might call a tight spot, caught between the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army on the other. And we reflected on how God brought His people through the Red Sea on dry ground and then completely destroyed the Egyptian army. And while God was at work, all the Israelites were encouraged to do was to not fear and to be still. They were completely passive in their deliverance. Well, the Israelites, they come through the Red Sea, and as we pick up in the story, they find themselves moving through the wilderness or the desert on their way to the promised land. And over the next few chapters of Exodus, we get various snapshots of their wilderness journey. And so over the next two to three weeks, we're going to be considering two to three different accounts of what life in the wilderness looks like for God's people. And what we'll see is that as God's people move through the desert, uh, that their faith is tested. We'll see that while they experience trials and troubles as they make their way through the desert, God is always at work behind the scenes, caring for and providing for their needs. Over the course of the wilderness accounts, we'll see that troubles and trials of the desert, they take the Israelites by surprise, but those things, they never surprise God. In the same way, trials and troubles of life, they may catch us by surprise. They may catch us unprepared, but God is never unprepared. Left to ourselves, the trials and troubles that we experience in this fallen world would be more than we could bear. But in Exodus, we're reminded that we're never left to ourselves. We're reminded that by ourselves, we wouldn't know which way to turn, but we're not by ourselves. God has planned the course we're supposed to take, And on top of that, he walks with us. And so to see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Exodus chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, 
And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily." Now skipping to verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you've ever seen the documentary series entitled Planet Earth produced by the BBC where each episode focuses on a different habitat found in the world. In this documentary, you're invited to explore wildlife in the mountains in the ocean, in the rainforest, in the polar regions, and in the desert. Now, I wonder if you've ever been to the desert. And if you have been to the desert, what do you remember about the desert? Well, in the documentary, you learn that desert covers a third of the Earth's land surface. It highlights how the desert is the place where you can experience giant temperature fluctuations between day and night. You might experience massive dust storms in the desert. You might not encounter water for days on end. In the desert, it seems like everything is either trying to stick you, bite you, or sting you. The desert, it's not really conducive to life. In fact, it's opposite of lush. It's an unforgiving environment. And it's a really good image of what life in this fallen world looks like. Now step back and think about that for a minute. When God created this world, where did he place Adam and Eve? Well, he placed them in a garden a place that was well-watered, a place that was beautiful, a place full of delightful food and beautiful animals, a place where they could flourish and thrive. 
And what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and fell into sin? Well, they were banished from the garden, weren't they? They were banished from paradise. And they were forced out into what we might call the wilderness. And in many ways, ever since that banishment back in Genesis chapter 3, this is a description of our lives, of our journey in this fallen world. It's one through the desert, one through wilderness. We find ourselves at a time in between the Garden of Eden and the new heavens and the new earth. And it's a place characterized by sin and death and struggle and exhaustion and suffering. You might say that we're following Jesus, this side of resurrection, through the wilderness in a desert-like environment. And what the Israelites were experiencing physically on the pages of Exodus, it really provides us with a spiritual paradigm for what it looks like for us to follow Jesus through this sinful world. We can look at the Israelites as they make their way through a literal desert, a literal wilderness, and learn how we're meant to walk in faithfulness through the figurative wilderness of life. And what we see as we follow along with the Israelites' rescue from Egypt is that instead of going right to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, they spend 40 years wandering around the desert, mainly due to their own fault, due to their own sin. And as they journey through the wilderness, they're constantly reminded of their fragility, and they're invited to cultivate a deeper dependence and faith in God. And even though it's not always evident, and God's people don't always recognize it, It's God himself who led these people into the wilderness, the desert, where life is hard to sustain. Such an important point to keep in mind that the wilderness was a part of God's plan for them, to test them. It was a part of the journey that he was taking them on. And as God's people make their way through the wilderness, it should come as no surprise that they have a hard time coming by food. I mean, after all, the wilderness isn't a place where nourishment is plentiful. And to put their anxiety in perspective, it's sometimes said that most Western societies are three days of empty bread shelves from civil disorder. How many days do you think you could go without food? We appear to live peacefully together by and large, but if something went wrong with food supplies, then it would take only a few days before rioting and looting broke out, a few days before societal unrest erupted. And it's what we see from God's people after spending about 45 days in the difficulty of the wilderness. Finally, the hunger pangs get to them. Maybe they've gone a few days without food, and we see their response in verse 2 and 3 where we read this. You can look at it. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And this grumbling isn't going to be unusual as we follow along with Israel in the wilderness. In fact, you could say grumbling is their default posture when things don't go the way that they want or expect. We'll continually see the Israelites grumbling as they make their way through the wilderness to the promised land. And it's not a foreign attitude to us, is it? This grumbling. Grumbling sometimes seems to be a way of life for God's people in the wilderness. It certainly was on the pages of Exodus. But isn't that attitude surprising and almost nonsensical given their recent history? Step back and think about that for a minute. 
Remember, the Israelites had just been rescued from Egyptian slavery in the most dramatic fashion. They had just seen the hand of God parting the Red Sea and defeating the Egyptian army on their behalf. They had just sung the praises or praises to the Lord as they crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. But all that was a few days ago. Today, they're hungry. Today, they're grumbling. Now, we can't be too hard on the Israelites, can we? We can understand their forgetfulness. We can resonate with it in so many ways. Just think about your own life. I mean, perhaps you've seen of God's unfailing love on a Sunday morning here at Trinity Grace, but a few days later, maybe even a few hours later, this afternoon, you're grumbling. Think of all the things that God has done for you. Think of all that He's promised you. But also think how easily it is for us to lose a sense of perspective. Think how much better we are at seeing what we don't have than what we do have. And when we focus on what we don't have, when we forget God's wonderful works in our life, we tend to grumble. We see that God's people were so delusional and lost in the wilderness that they longed for their lives back in Egypt. They longed to go back to slavery and oppression. Verse 3 is the language of addiction. We just looked at it. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt where we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They think that we had it better back there. They remember their former way of life with affection. Their desire isn't anchored in reality, you might say. Remember, they hated life in Egypt. You could flip a few pages back in Exodus and see that. Life under the lash, it was miserable. But in the heat of the wilderness, they remember it fondly. They think they wouldn't mind going back. A few months ago, the people were groaning and crying out in slavery. But now, all of a sudden, they think of Egypt as a wonderful place to live. It's really a horrendous claim. They're saying that they were better off in Egypt, that God's deliverance has actually made things worse for them. The people are effectively telling God, we wish that you hadn't bothered rescuing us. We wish that you just left us where we were. And it goes to show that one of the characteristics of grumbling is that it's often based on idealized and unrealistic views on the way life used to be. Their memory of life in Egypt, it's skewed. They quickly forget their hard labor under the Egyptian slave drivers. And it's because their old way of life, it was still fresh in some ways. It hadn't been worked out of them yet, is what I mean. In their hearts, they were still slaves. Although they were free, they still lived as enslaved people. Sure, they were physically removed from slavery, but it had done a number on them and their self-perception. Their previous way of life was ingrained in their self-perception. They viewed themselves as slaves, not free people. One pastor puts his finger on this when he says, you can get the people out of slavery in an instant, but you can't get the slavery out of people except through a long process. And this is where the wilderness wanderings come into focus. According to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which we read earlier this morning, the reason the wilderness wanderings happened was to teach God's people who they are, to form in them a deeper dependence. Another word for test would be to train, to train, to form God's people. In other words, God wants to use the wilderness to disciple the Israelites. The wilderness was all about education, not rapid transportation. The wilderness was primarily formation. And this stands as a reminder that deliverance can happen in an instant, 
like it did with the Israelites, but the long road of learning your new identity in Christ, it takes a lifetime. It's a process. And God deliberately leads the Israelites into the wilderness in order to grow them in dependence and in their new identity. Through their wilderness wanderings, they're being prepared for life in Canaan. Their time in the wilderness, it's a period of spiritual formation. And by confronting the Israelites with a lack of food and water, God wants to test their trust in Him. And it practically makes sense to us because we know that it's the difficulties of life where we are normally forced to rely on God, to live into our identity, our new identity, to be reminded of how far we have left to grow sometimes. In 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that suffering in this life is preparing us for glory. We don't arrive at glory without suffering. We don't get to the land of Canaan, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, without walking and moving through the wilderness. And did you know that a synonym for glory is the word weighty? Weighty. It's actually one of the ways the word can be understood. Glory is weightiness. Which means if suffering, if you're suffering in this life, it's intended to bring a weightiness to your soul, to your life. And you know those who have suffered have a weightiness about them, don't you? A sobriety that's noticeable. Wisdom, sensitivity, compassion, kindness, stability, perseverance, depth. All of these things come from wilderness training, from suffering. But this is bad news for us. Bad news for Western people because we like technique. We like technology. We like the process to be pain-free by and large. But God invites us into a process, a sometimes painful process, a long process, an arduous process, but one where you're a person, not an object. And what we see, in fact, our big idea for this morning, this is it, is that God provides in the wilderness. God provides in the wilderness. God doesn't leave us alone in the wilderness. He generously supplies all that's needed for us as long as it's needed. And specifically in our passage this morning, we see that God provides food and he provides rest for the people that he loves. It's such a gracious response from God to his people's grumbling, isn't it? We see God's response to their need and their grumbling in verse 4 where God tells Moses, look at it, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And we learn that manna literally means what is it? That's what it means in the Hebrew, is a thin, sweet, bread-like substance. And it's clear that this is God's provision because you're not supposed to find bread in the desert. That's not something that normally happens. It's a barren place, but God graciously provides. And did you notice that there were some rules regarding the manna? We see that people are allowed together a certain amount. We see that people are only allowed together what they need each day. We see that people are meant together double the daily amount the day before the Sabbath so that they can rest, which you know would have been a completely foreign concept, the idea of rest to a group of people who had just spent centuries being worked nonstop. But it's God's gift to them as creatures. You get to rest. Now remember how salvation and deliverance through the Red Sea, it was completely passive. The people only needed to fear not and to be still while God worked. But here there's an active element, isn't there? The people have to move. They have to gather. And it's pretty obvious that this manna provides strength for them in the wilderness. But it's also meant to teach us something at a deeper level. 
We read about it earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that means that the manna was a physical picture of a deeper spiritual reality. Manna is meant to highlight our need for God's word. And we know how this works because who hasn't been sustained in the wilderness, in the desert of life by God's word? Much like we're physically sustained by bread. Has God's word ever been manna to you? Have you ever found it nourishing, sweet, sustaining? In times of spiritual wilderness, you're invited to turn to God's Word as your food, to chew on it, to digest it, to come back to it again and again for nourishment. And isn't it interesting that God wanted the people to gather enough for each day and only enough for that day? I mean, why go out together once a day? Why not gather once a week or once a month and kind of stock your pantries? Why go out each day? Well, it's about a dependent relationship, reminding us that God continually provides, shaping us to remain daily dependent on Him. Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, give us this day our daily bread, not tomorrow's bread, but to meet today's needs. God provides enough strength to handle today's challenges. And manna requires you to trust that God is going to provide today, and then again tomorrow, And then again the day after that. And hopefully you can see how this was training or testing God's people in trust. This is why leftover manna melted away with the sun. And if you tried to hoard manna until the next day, it would go bad. I mean, we can just imagine how some Israelites went to bed, and we're certainly reading between the lines here, but went to bed that first night looking maybe at the pot of manna saved for tomorrow and how that made them feel so secure. I've got my manna ready for me tomorrow. I don't have to go out and and get any more. But the next morning, it's full of maggots and starts to smell. And it, it points us to the fact that there is no alternative but to trust that God will provide day by day. Those who store manna overnight don't believe that God is going to provide fresh manna the next day. But we've got to learn to trust Him every day. In the desert, God is schooling His people to trust Him on a daily basis. And what we see is that God daily provides throughout the entire course of their wilderness journey every day for 40 whole years until they reach their destination, the promised land. It's amazing provision. But what does this mean for us today here in 21st century San Antonio as we seek to follow the Lord through the wilderness of life? Well, first, I think we need to always keep in mind that faithfully following Jesus is a process. Some places along the way are drier and more intense than others, but God always provides. And we're meant to engage Him in a daily process of gathering the nourishment that He provides to get us through that day. Now, what's the opposite of a process? Well, it's a fix. It's immediate solution. It's an instantaneous resolution. But that's not how God works to cultivate us in deeper trust and dependence in our lives. We were created to be dependent. And isn't it unusually encouraging that God wants us to come to Him on a daily basis for spiritual nourishment? We don't have to get ahead of ourselves. We don't have to worry about the future. God invites us to take our journey through the wilderness on a day-by-day basis. And if you've ever experienced tragedy or disappointment 
or really bad news, you know just how comforting this encouragement to remain daily dependent can be. As you think about your life and maybe even experiencing an acute season of suffering or doubt or a bleak diagnosis, it is really helpful and encouraging to say, we don't have to worry about how we're going to cope in three months' time. We don't have to worry about three months from now. We can just take it one day at a time. We can trust God to provide for our needs today. And we trust that He'll be able able, uh, to provide for those uh, same needs tomorrow afresh. God doesn't give us grace today for tomorrow. You don't have to hoard God's grace. It's new every morning. It doesn't run dry. And this means that you can be present in the here and now. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about how you would cope if disaster or more disappointment comes. Don't play out scenarios in your head. God doesn't give grace for ifs or maybes. God gives grace for today. You will have the grace for the next day when that day comes, but it won't come till tomorrow. God graciously gives enough encouragement for today. He gives enough strength for today. He gives enough hope for today. And we're invited to move out and to collect what we need for today. Trusting God is going to provide again for us tomorrow when tomorrow arrives. So as we journey through the wilderness known as life in this fallen world, as we experience disappointments and difficulty, difficult news, setbacks, sadness, We can be encouraged that God walks with us in the wilderness and He provides for what we need in the wilderness. We see that in Exodus 16. We see that God provides bread for His people. And we see it in an even more beautiful way in the person of Jesus. God Himself who comes down to walk in the wilderness with us and who calls Himself in John chapter 6 the bread of life. The the very person that the manna was meant to prepare us for. God gave his people manna in the wilderness. And it was simply a foretaste, you might say. It was an appetizer of what he planned to give us one day soon. Jesus, the bread of life. And whoever comes to him, whoever comes to that bread of life will never go hungry. And whoever believes in him in that bread of life will never be thirsty. Jesus himself has come down from heaven like manna to satisfy God's people. And isn't it remarkable? I mean, after all, you're not supposed to find bread in the desert. Just like you're not supposed to find the creator walking in his creation. But he graciously enters the wilderness for us to be with us, to satisfy our hunger and to quench our thirst. In Jesus, we are assured that God will always provide for his people. He's given us Jesus. What more else could he give? He's given all that he could. And we're simply invited to come to him on a daily basis to find nourishment that our souls need most. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are thankful that you know we are needy, independent people. We are thankful for the way that you provide for all of our needs, physical and spiritual We thank you for the bread of life that stepped down into the wilderness to be with us and to nourish us with rich food. We pray that as we feast upon him, that you would bring nourishment to our souls and allow us to walk with you faithfully through this, through this, through the desert of this fallen world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.